All right, Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Let's pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, we ask your blessing now on the teaching of your word. And we pray, Lord, that you will speak truth as you only speak truth. But give us hearts able to and open to receive the truth, to stand in the truth, and to find trust and faith in Jesus as a result. We pray your Holy Spirit would be in this place teaching us and speaking to us. And we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Stephen Vincent Benet once was quoted as saying, Dreaming men are haunted men. And I believe Nebuchadnezzar was a haunted man. If you were here Wednesday night, you know, we saw in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar was sleep deprived and dream disturbed. Continuing to have this bizarre dream that that was freaking him out. He didn't understand it and it terrified him. And so he called in his magicians and his conjurers and his sorcerers and his wise guys. And none of them could figure it out. They offered to. They said, oh, we'll tell you the interpretation. And he said, okay, well, just to be sure that you're on the up and up, I want you to tell me the dream first. You tell me the dream. And then I'll know that you're legitimate to tell me what the interpretation is. And of course, they couldn't do it. So Nebuchadnezzar decreed that they should be torn limb from limb. But a wise man stood up. A young man by the name of Daniel. And he accepted the challenge. If you go back in Daniel chapter 2 and look at verse 28, we see Daniel standing here before Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel has prayed about it. He sought the advice, the counsel of his friends. And now Daniel is standing before the king. And he says in verse 28, There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O King, while on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. And He who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Daniel was so humble. He said, this is not me. I'm not a wise man because I happen to be innately wise. I'm a wise man because the Spirit of God is in me. I'm wise only because of the wisdom that God gives to me. And I think what a great example for followers of Jesus. To never assume that any wisdom coming out of our mouth, especially about spiritual things, is self-generated. And I've told you before, there is no wisdom that comes out of my mouth that is self-generated. The self-generated words that come out of my mouth, my family can attest to you, are mostly the stuff of foolishness. But the wisdom... It's the wisdom of God. It's the wisdom of the Spirit of the Lord. He deserves the credit. Daniel gives him the credit. And then verses 31 through 45, Daniel tells the entire dream. He lays it out there for Nebuchadnezzar in a stunning manner. Nebuchadnezzar's mouth hanging wide open, listening to his own dream described to him by Daniel. And he said, he said, you saw a great image. And it had a head of gold and, and silver arms and chest. 
A belly of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of an amalgamation of iron and clay. And you looked upon these things, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a rock not cut out by human hands struck the feet of the statue and pulverized the whole thing. This is your dream, and you can be sure about it. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar was. He had dreamed it. And then he goes on to tell the interpretation, which was four nations at first that we now see historically. Babylon, the gold head, Medo-Persia, the silver arms and chest, Greece, the bronze belly, and Rome, the legs of iron. And history has seen all four of those nations as described in this dream and in a latter vision Daniel will have in Daniel chapter 7. Remarkable. In fact, it's so remarkable as we shared last week, the critics of Daniel would say this book had to have been written after the fact because it's too historically accurate. Well, welcome to the prophecies of God. So Daniel explains this, speaks this truth. History has seen for the fifth kingdom represented by the feet. Feet of iron mixed with clay is an amalgamated empire that will come up in the days of the rule at the end of this age of what the Bible calls the Antichrist. And Daniel will talk more about him. But the most disturbing part of the dream and the reason that Nebuchadnezzar lost sleep over this whole thing is his glorious statue got rocked. Literally rocked. It was this stone out of nowhere. Here's this beautiful statue with Nebuchadnezzar's head on the top. You know, this big golden head representing Babylon. And Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, if you skip down and look at this, Daniel is still describing and he says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to you, the king, what will take place in the future so the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. And that stone, my friends, that stone is not the kingdom. That stone is the king. Jesus Christ is represented by the stone. Other Hebrew prophecies make that absolutely clear. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a a precious choice cornerstone, the Bible tells us. Jesus quotes these prophecies. And then He says in Matthew 21.44, He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. He's talking about Israel. Now, Christians have taken that verse and said, oh, we need to be broken like that. You don't want to fall on the stone and be broken to pieces. That's not the kind of brokenness God calls us to. Humility, yes. Repentance, absolutely. But the brokenness Jesus describes here is a broken people. And Israel was broken. Dispersed throughout all the nations. A nation broken up. And yet not destroyed. But Jesus also spoke these words. He said, On whomever this stone falls, it will scatter him like dust. And he's talking about the nations. 2,600 years ago, God put the nations of this world on notice. People who say, God's not fair. God is unjust. He gave us 2,600 years laying out, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's coming. The Bible prophecies that we have in our hands are all about God saying, be ready, be prepared. I'm coming. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to verify it across history before it comes. So that when it comes, you can be ready. When Jesus comes, you will be one of His own. It's powerful stuff. 
And I wonder, if I were in the shoes of Nebuchadnezzar, what I would do with the dream and the interpretation. I have this marvelous dream of the statue, and it frightens me because of the stone, and I hear what it really means. What would you do with it? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, in all of his royal brilliance, made an image of gold the height of which was 60 cubits, and it's with 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. 60 cubits high, that's 90 feet. Uh, 6 cubits wide would be 9 feet wide. This great statue, Nebuchadnezzar, he builds it of gold. The entire image is of gold, not just the head. Why? Some believe, and I think it's plausible, that Nebuchadnezzar was saying, my kingdom ain't never going to fall. My kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Matthew 6.13 tells us, For yours, speaking Jesus of the Father, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Not Nebuchadnezzar. Not Alexander the Great. Not Cyrus the Persian. Not any of the great rulers of Rome. Only the Lord. Edgar Allan Poe once said, The nine and the ninety are with dreams content. But the hope of the world made new is the hundredth man who is grimly bent on making those dreams come true. And Nebuchadnezzar became grimly bent. He had his dream and he said, I'm going to make this true. I'm going to take this, I'm going to turn it around. I'm going to make it work for me. Interesting that in Iraq today, on the plain of Dura, about six and a half miles southeast of the ancient site of Babylon, there is a rectangular mound. You can see it. Google it online. It's about 20 feet high. It has an exact square base of about 46 feet in width. It is a pedestal. Archaeologists tell us a pedestal for a colossal statue. But that colossal 90-foot tall gold statue is not there anymore, nor is the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so for all of us, and especially those who are younger among us, please understand the only dreams that last are the dreams that come from the Lord. The only dreams worth making true are those dreams that are aligned with the will and purposes of God because His will and purposes stand. Everything else will fall. And the Lord would speak to you, teenagers, early on, now, at a younger age in your life, to say, as you plot a course, as you chart a course for your lives, chart a course based on the will of God. Go to Jesus and say, what would you have for me in my life? And you will find an entirely different thing than some dream that you try to make true on your own. Nebuchadnezzar had yet to learn this, so he sets up this massive golden image. I'm going to give you four images for our study this morning as we look at this one image of Nebuchadnezzar. And the first is the image of praise. The image of praise. Picking up in verse 2, let's follow the story through. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, the partridges, and the pear trees, all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, 
lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And who do you think the image resembled? I can only imagine the golden face looking a lot like Nebuchadnezzar up there at the top of that statue. It's interesting, Nebuchadnezzar was more really of a humanist than anything else. He was not a theist, he was not really a believer, not until perhaps later on, as we may see in Wednesday's study. But like many good politicians, Nebuchadnezzar knew how to use religious tools for the state. We see it a lot. We see it a lot these days. How many times do we hear our politicians invoking faith or the name of God to move their political agendas? In April of this year, President Obama became the first sitting president to address Planned Parenthood, to address a Planned Parenthood conference. Planned Parenthood is the largest abortion provider and advocacy organization in the country. It's estimated that eight abortions took place during the president's speech. And yet he never used the word abortion once as he spoke to this group, but concluded his address by saying, quote, Thank you, Planned Parenthood. God bless you. And I read that, and I just got to tell you, and it, you know, not, this is not a political opinion. It bothers me when politicians invoke the name of God for ungodly things. In fact, it's a violation of the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And we think of that as someone saying, oh my God, and and, oh, you've just taken the Lord's name in vain. It's taken the Lord's name in vain to use it to apply it to bless something that He would not bless. And so politicians will do this. That bugs me. I get it. Though Nebuchadnezzar does it. He uses religious imagery. Babylon is the capital of all idolatry. Why not set up a 90-foot tall statue and have people worship it to draw their loyalty into the state? But beyond the statue, he uses a couple of other motivators, what you could call motivators for worship. First of all, he struck up the band. Verse 5 tells us, all these instruments began to play in this amazing orchestra. Now, don't think ancient. Think, think the best in the world at that time. The best musicians, the best instrumentation, and the best orchestration. And scholars who have looked at these instruments tell us, this was an impressive orchestra. This was something amazing. And Nebuchadnezzar knew what he was doing in applying the music to the worship. Let me just ask you, how many of you have been at secular concert experiences that felt like worship? The band just gets into you. And maybe you're moved to tears over a song, or, or you're moved just to get up on your feet because you, your heart is just being rocked, or, or your hands are raised with everybody else and the lighters or the cell phones, whatever they're using now, I don't even know. And you get moved by the music and it feels like a worship experience. And by contrast, and I will tell you honestly, when we're worshiping here in the barn, I always am worried that it's going to be musically uh, too moving. I would almost rather have some guy up here with a juice harp. 
or a mandolin or a ukulele so that we would get our focus off of the music because the music is not the deal, gang. It is just a means of worship. It is not the end. True worship is the worship of the heart. And the end of true worship is the worship of the Lord God Himself. You know God created music for praise. His praise. And Satan comes along and... and abdicates it, takes it away from the Lord, grabs hold of it, uses it for himself, makes it about himself. But the Lord, in the first place, created music that we might have a method, a means of lifting up praise and honor to His name. Let me just read this to you. Psalm 150 speaks this so beautifully, especially when it comes to uh, instrumental praise. I love this psalm. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and with dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. So those of you who have a problem with the drums... Psalm 150 says, get over it. (laughs) Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And so really the question when you read that psalm is, can you breathe? Because if you can breathe, you are called to praise the Lord. To lift up praise to His name. The Hebrew word there for breath, neshama, is similar to another Hebrew word there for breath, ruach. Both words, ruach and neshama, both mean either breath or spirit. And so translated that way, let everything that has spirit praise the Lord. If you have a spirit in you, which basically means if you're a human being, praise the Lord. Everything, Even if all you can play is Pandora, praise the Lord if you've got a spirit. Lift up His name. Worship Him. Because everything with a spirit is called to praise the Lord, Jesus said, in spirit and in truth. He said, John 4.23, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks as His worshipers. And that's where true worship takes place. It takes place in the heart, in the spirit. You all know, and Jim talked about this recently, we're looking for a worship leader. We're looking for someone to take that mantle of, of leading us in praise and worship. But I just remind you of this as we go forward. We are not looking for the most accomplished musician. We're looking for someone anointed to lead us into the presence of the Father in praise. And even if it's someone who ends up up here that you don't want, you know what? Praise the Lord. Bless the Lord. Praise His name from your spirit. Because music is just a means to the end. Emotions aren't worship. Emotions are an image. They can be very pretentious. But Nebuchadnezzar uses them. He strikes up the band, but that's not enough. He also fired up the furnace. Verses 6 and 7 talk about this furnace he has right off there to the side, probably within sight of the statue so that people can see, I have a choice. (laughs) I can bow and worship or I can get fried. Nebuchadnezzar lays that out there. Nebuchadnezzar, interesting world leader. This guy was dead serious about law and justice. About law enforcement. They say he was one of the most law-enforcing rulers of the ancient world. The ancient cuneiform tablets say he did not rest night or day to defend the Babylonian state. And if it was Babylonian law, you did it, mister. It doesn't matter if you want to or not. 
And he had decreed as law the worship of this golden statue. If you don't want to do it, it doesn't matter. You do it. And he made sure that it was followed through. He fires up the furnace. The problem with this mentality, this worship or burn policy, is that you can't fire up a heart of worship. You can't force a spirit to worship. You can't make somebody worship in spirit and in truth. And I guarantee you that day there were hundreds if not thousands of people bowing down before the image thinking about what they were going to do for lunch. And I know it never happens at church. (laughs) Thinking about other things. Minds distracted in other places. Spirits not worshiping. Because you can't force the spirit to worship. Oh, you can make the body go through the motions. And you can scare people into doing whatever you want them to do. But you can't make the spirit respond in that way. Nebuchadnezzar struck up the band, fired up the furnace, until those Jews rained on his parade. Verse 8. For this reason, at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and they said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever! You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Well, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Second image this morning. Nebuchadnezzar sets up an image of praise. The second image is the image of persecution. The image of persecution. Understand a couple of things about what's going on here. First of all, the charge against these boys was absolutely true. There's nothing faulty in this charge. They would not bow down and worship. They were not among all those bowing down. I don't know if you saw the the picture that Steve put up here before we started about a glorious king going by and everybody bowing down. There was one guy standing there. Okay, and I didn't notice the guy standing there at first. I'm like, why are you showing a picture of these people bowing down? That's weird. That's weird. Take it down. Take it down. And then he goes, well, see the guy standing? I'm like, oh, okay. Okay, guys, I get it. We have one single man in protest. Good. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know their Jewish names. Azariah, Mishael, Hananiah. These three guys simply refused to do it. But understand, they didn't go looking for trouble. They weren't marching back and forth with placards protesting the statue. We won't bow. We won't bow. Take it down now. You know, I don't know what they... They weren't doing this. They were not in protest. They hadn't lodged a formal complaint. They simply refused to bow to the idol of culture. And I think there's something we ought to learn from that, gang. Refusing to bow to the idol of culture. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Paul said, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. And I need you to hear me clearly when I say this. The Christian calling is not a calling to a life of protest. Now understand, I'm not opposed to standing up. And I'm not opposed to protesting. What I'm opposed to is holding the sign when the Spirit is not changed in the way you deal with culture. 
It would be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego holding up protest signs while bowing down before the idol. We're against this as we bow. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying it, it makes no sense to protest against a culture that we're completely engaged in and embrace in our daily lives. If we're going to protest, the Bible tells us, let it first be in a quiet, peaceable life, live with all godliness and reverence. Let it start in the place of the heart. You want to protest something, how about we protest what's coming into our living rooms by not watching it? How about we protest what's in the movies by not paying to see it? How about we protest by simply not engaging in the things of culture which are anti-God? There's your protest. And that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are doing. Paul calls us to prayer. Prayer is never passive, by the way. Prayer is the most engaging and activist thing you can do. You want to be an activist? Start praying your guts out. Start praying to the Lord. Start taking every issue before Him and asking for His intervention. Paul says we're called to peace and godliness and reverence before the Lord. And this is how it works. We see it in Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are living godly lives, but in a dark culture, it's a light that you can't miss. Simple godliness is a light that you cannot miss. And Jesus put it this way, You are the light of the world. Matthew 5.14 A city set upon a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on the lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He says nothing about marching a protest. He says live it out. Live in the light so that those around you will see how different you are, which is exactly what happened with these three young men. They were so different, the other Chaldeans, the other wise men, noticed and went, dude, what's their problem? They're not acting like the rest of us. And they took it to the king. I like what Spurgeon had to say about this. He said, you will not be able to go through life without being discovered. A lighted candle cannot be hid. There's a feeling among some good people that it will be wise to be very reticent, to hide their light under a bushel. They intend to lie low in wartime and come out when the palms are being distributed. They hope to travel to heaven by the back lanes and skulk into glory in disguise. Ah, me, Spurgeon says, what a degenerate set. Godliness is something you simply cannot hide. And these young men understood that. But Paul also tells us, 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So the guarantee is, if you decide to live a quiet and reverent life, if you decide to live a peaceable life before the Lord, a prayerful life, a truly godly life, you're going to be found out and you're going to be persecuted for it. You're going to take it on the chin for the Lord. And some of you might ask this question. Why does God allow the suffering of His people? How is that fair? When all we're trying to do is live for Him. We're trying to align our lives with His. We're trying to follow His Word. We're doing the best that we can, Lord. And yet we get persecuted for it. And yet we suffer for it. Why? Why must we suffer? Why not protect us more? And the answer is very simple. Few things are more powerful testimony 
than seeing God at work in somebody's life who is under fire. Seeing someone walk out faith in God though they are persecuted, though they are torn up for it. That speaks volumes to the rest of the world that's watching. And Paul said it this way, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 2, You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. You know what? People are reading you, gang. They see right through you and me. They are reading us. We say, oh, I'm a Christian, and they're reading it. I'm a believer in Jesus. How are you different? I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't look different than I do. But I love the Lord. Yeah, but you do what I do. They're reading us. Paul said we are to be manifested that you are a letter of Christ. Cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. We're being read, gang. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were being read in that moment. You notice that Daniel very clearly lays out here that all the the satraps and the governors and the prefects and all these leaders were there. They're all watching. They're all checking this out. And they're all being led to see what persecuted people who believe in God really do. They're reading the situation. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and anger gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But, if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Hello, McFly. What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? How about the same God who gave Nebuchadnezzar's dream and interpretation to Daniel just one chapter earlier? Has he forgotten? Now, historically, it may have been 20 years or so between chapters 2 and chapters 3. We don't know. It may have been right away. There's no way to know for sure. But how do you forget something like that? That Daniel comes up, and by the way, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were there too. It was all four of them before Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2, declaring the dream, declaring the interpretation. They're all there. And now, Nebuchadnezzar is looking at these same three guys whose God told them his dream, and he says, who can deliver you from my hands? How quickly the miraculous fades away when there is no faith. And we have talked about this before, my friends. Miracles don't bring people to faith in God. Miracles fade. And you ask the question, why did the people cross the Red Sea and still rebel? Because that's what people do. Because rebellion has nothing to do with faith. Rebellion has to do with me looking at God and saying, I just don't want to do what you asked me to. That's rebellion. You know what faith is? It's looking at the Lord and saying, I'll do what you asked me to do. Whether I see any results or not, I'm going to trust you, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to believe in you and listen to the faith of these persecuted men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) Listen, this is not impertinence. This is obedience. 
Because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew. I I really don't think they were being rude. I think they were really saying, we don't have to give an answer for our behavior. Let me give it to you in another way. In 1850, New York Senator uh, William Seward, who went on to be Secretary of State in the Lincoln administration, William Seward, in his first speech on the Senate floor, made this very, very famous statement. He said, there is a law higher than the Constitution. There's a higher law. And we Americans know that. We Christian Americans really know that. That our Constitution was written and based upon the higher principles and the laws of God. And that the Constitution, any rule of law will fail if not based on higher principles. And our law is. And Daniel's friends, they all say, look, we don't have to answer you because we are answerable to God and He has a higher law. We are answerable to our King. Peter and John understood the same thing. They got hauled in front of the Sanhedrin. The Jewish Sanhedrin, the leading class there, the ruling class. Acts chapter 4, verse 18. And they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Higher law. It's interesting that in Acts chapter 5, they get pulled back in front of the Sanhedrin again. Now Peter and the apostles, Acts chapter 5, verse 28, and the Sanhedrin says, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. How ironic. They had just, a few months earlier, said His blood be upon us. And now they're trying to back away from it? Well, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Well, they weren't the first. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying, we got to obey God. It's not impertinence, it's obedience. Verse 17, they say, if it be, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. That's not arrogance, that's confidence. They know in whose hands they stand. They know their God. You might say, that's, that's a little wild though, this whole idea that... I mean, how can they be looking at this burning hot furnace and think, oh, God will keep us, He'll protect us, He'll save us. Where would they get such a notion? Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2 is a good start. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. See the practical value of knowing the Word of God? I'm absolutely convinced Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew the word. They knew what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. They knew it was said that though you be thrown into the fire, I will protect you. I will not allow the flame to scorch you. God's word. And these young men obviously knew it and trusted it and believed in it because they were able to stand up and say, you know what, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. But I love verse 18. They say, even if He does not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's not a self-magnificence, gang. That is just perseverance. Even if you throw us in there and we're burned to a crisp, we're not going to worship your image. Even if it costs us our lives. How many of us can say that? How many of us are willing to be martyred for our faith? Not because we're out protesting and fighting and killing and but because we refuse to bow to any other God but Jesus Christ. 
Those days may be coming. Who's going to be ready? The image of perseverance, number three. The image of perseverance. Job said in Job 13, verse 15, Though He slay me, yet I will trust Him. I love that. Job is saying, even if God Himself slays me, I'm going to trust Him. Even if He takes my life, so be it. It's His life to take. I am going to trust in Him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand up here to the most powerful man in the world. The man with more world resources in his hands. The man who all he has to do is speak the word and they're dead. They stand up before him because they had already learned how to stand up in the little moments. You remember? They kept their kosher diet in Daniel chapter 1. They refused to eat the king's food. Something very simple. And it's been wisely said, small compromises lead to big failures. You want to fail later at something? Compromise now on the things that don't seem to matter so much. This is why lying is such a big deal in my household. Not lying, but not lying. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Don't lie. I'm I'm huge on that. I have talked to my kids over and over and over about it. With Naomi, we call it sneaking. Don't sneak. Sneaking is lying. You're doing the same thing. Why is that such a big deal? Because little lies learned in childhood become big fat ones in adulthood. Because if you think that you can deceive when you're young, you will try to deceive when you're old. And if you're trying to deceive, you're going to be deceived. Small decisions, small compromises leading to big failures. But win the big, win the little battles and you'll be ready for the war. Make the choices when they're small and no one really seems to be looking and knows otherwise. And when the big stuff hits, you will be ready for it. Oh, like the people mentioned in the book of Hebrews. Read this to you. Hebrews. Guy who makes the coffee. Where's Russ? I don't know where he comes up with stuff like that in this church. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. The writer says, What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, Daniel, quenched the power of the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received their dead by resurrection, others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection, and others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy." Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. You know what that means? That means that all of these people who stood by faith, who fought the big battles and the little battles, all of these people did not see the promise fulfilled. That's perseverance. They kept persevering, whether they saw it or not. Whether it all made sense or not. Sometimes the persecution or the problem in your life make no sense. Will you persevere? See, all these did. And thanks to their perseverance, the writer says, Therefore now we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. 
So let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. I love this. We were, we were driving in the car yesterday, went over to Toppins and Anacortes, took Naomi and David. The three of us headed over there. All you have to say is Toppins, and David's eyes start popping. It's <laughs> remarkable. And so we're driving over, and Naomi was telling me about how at school she was learning about books and about authors. And she said, Dad, did you know there are authors and there are illustrators? And I'm like, no, tell me more. And she said, yeah, there are authors and illustrators, and sometimes it's two different people, and sometimes it's the same person. And it's quiet for a minute, and we're all driving, and all of a sudden, Naomi goes, like God. I said, what? He's the author and the illustrator. (laughs) I know, right? In my car, it's like, profound aura. (laughs) In this moment of holiness, I look back, she's just shining. This is my little sneaker, right? God is the author and the illustrator. Dad, just look around. He's illustrated everything and and he made it all so he's the author. And I'm just going... I'm like, did your mother tell you this? I don't know where she's getting it. It's remarkable. The author and finisher of our faith, if we will just but persevere. Just persevere. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were ready for the fire because they had already learned about perseverance early on. Well, now things really heat up. Verse 19, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those of you laughing were probably here Wednesday night. We talked about the facial expression of Nebuchadnezzar as Daniel was declaring the dream and the interpretation and how it changed. And I'm not going to do it right now. So he he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes, and they were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was so urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. That is one hot fire. These guys didn't even get into the furnace. They're just throwing the guys in and they are fried, burned to a crisp. But understand something here. Obedience and confidence and perseverance will not automatically keep you out of the fire. Perseverance may not make any difference in this life. We may well go into the flames anyway. Sometimes you go into the fire not in spite of your faith, but in light of your faith, because of your faith. But in those times... Know that Jesus looks at you and says, You are so blessed. You are blessed. Blessed are those, Matthew 5.10, who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I love how the Bible always clarifies that, by the way. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, not for being an idiot. If you're persecuted for being an idiot, that's your problem. (laughs) Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. And in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
The follower of Jesus sees the fire as just another opportunity to follow Jesus. They see the flames as somewhere Jesus has already been. Both Paul and Peter understood that. Paul who said, I want to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. The fellowship of His sufferings? Gang, Thursday night we're going to have a great harvest party fellowship here in the barn. We're going to laugh. We're going to have great foods. Lots of cake. We're going to enjoy ourselves. Share in just the joy of being brothers and sisters in Christ. It'll be a wonderful fellowship. How many of you would show up for a night of fellowship of suffering? (laughs) Friday night, we're going to have a fellowship of suffering. We're going to have some scourges, whips, chains there. We're going to take care of anyone who walks through the door. Hope you're there. (laughs) Come on out and show up for a little bit of heartache and pain and sorrow. We'll send you home with tears, if nothing else. Paul says, I want to know that. I want to know the fellowship of the suffering of Jesus Christ. That's how much Paul loved Jesus. As he suffered, I want to suffer. In fact, if you track Paul's life through the book of Acts, watch where his feet go. His feet first go back to Jerusalem, even as everyone's telling him, if you go back to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. That's okay, they killed Jesus there. And I want to go where Jesus went. He gets to Jerusalem and they don't kill him. He calls out his Roman citizenship. He realizes, oh, it's not here. I have more to do. I have more words to speak, more letters to write. And so they haul him off to Rome where he knows he's going to be executed. And indeed, he was. I want to know this. The fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. I want to be like Jesus. Into the fire. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.13, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Verse 24, continuing on, then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste and said to his high officials, "Um, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? Just check my math. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three. Okay, yeah, it's three. They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. And he said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Of course it looked like a son of the gods to Nebuchadnezzar, because Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan. He's looking with pagan eyes. He sees Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walking around in the furnace. And a fourth man who is so impressive, Nebuchadnezzar says, he looks like a son of the gods. And I am absolutely convinced, and you cannot convince me otherwise, it was Jesus. A Christophany. Jesus in a pre-incarnate state, in His still glorified state, He's there, He shows up, He's among Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, walking around there in the furnace. But why do you think that, Rick? Well, because it's all about Jesus when it comes right down to it. He said, Psalm 40, verse 7, Hebrews 10, verse 7, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. This is my story. It's not the story of Daniel. In fact, the book of Daniel isn't even really about Daniel. It's about Jesus. It's his story. And Hebrews 13.5 says, He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we may confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Old Rich Mullins song, back on his album, The World is Best as I Remember It, Volume 1. He wrote the song where he said, 
You'll meet the Lord in the furnace a long time before you meet Him in the sky. To meet the Lord, to be with Jesus in the furnace. Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age, Matthew 28, verse 20. Does that mean He takes a coffee break from your life? Well, He meant He was with me always most of the time. You know, there was just that day where He was busy on the other side of the world. Or like the pastor who was flying in the airplane and was freaking out and the stewardess sought you know, to encourage him and said, hey, doesn't the Bible say he'll be with you always? And the guy said, no, it says, lo, he'll be with me always. <laughs> so perhaps we can allow you know, that caveat. I'm with you always. Which means, gang, if you go into the furnace, Jesus is there. If you're out on a gloriously beautiful afternoon, Jesus is there. If you're tempted into the midst of sin, Jesus is there. I'm with you always. And in verse 26, Then Nebuchadnezzar came next to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come out! You servants of the Most High God, and come here! And Brian pointed this out to me after first hour. Isn't this hilarious? He had to tell them to come out. <laughs> They're in there hanging with Jesus. Well, they weren't chilling, but they were in the furnace. (laughs) Just with Jesus. And they had to be told to come out. Because why? Well, because I'd rather be in the furnace with Jesus than out on a beautiful day without Him. Much rather be in His presence. Where He is. In that place, even if it's painful. If that's where He is, that's where I want to be. So he calls them out, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, remember I said they were watching? The prefects, the governors, the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, which is good because they had just come from a sale at American Eagle, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. They didn't even smell like smoke. They were untouched. The guys who tried to throw them into the fire were gone. Little heaps of ash. And they didn't even smell like smoke. That's amazing to me. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent His angel and delivered His servants who put their trust in Him Some might say, well, Rick, see, even it says angel right there, so it could have been Jesus. Well, two problems. Number one, this is Nebuchadnezzar talking. And number two, the word angel is simply messenger. And Jesus functions many times as a messenger for the Lord, even throughout the Hebrew Bible. And he says, he sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no god who is able to deliver in this way. He's not quite getting the whole idea here. But he's so moved, he's so excited, he's so impassioned, he says, this is the God who delivers. Isn't that ironic? That right back in verse 15, he just asked the question, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Well, Nebuchadnezzar has just learned. And he's starting to get it. He is starting to figure it out. It says, the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. I think right here you can put Nebuchadnezzar in the class of those who believe. He's just made a step into belief. 
Not faith. He's a believer. He might even be in the class of so many churchgoers. There are so many people in American society who go, Yeah, I believe there's a God. Oh, I believe in God. Absolutely believe in God. I hope he hears me saying this. I believe in you. You know? <laughs> Does nothing for my life, but I believe. Because in the end, when it all comes down, if it's all true, then I want to be able to say, Look, I said I believed. Mm-hmm. Nebuchadnezzar can say that he said he believed, but notice it's in the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's not in his own God. It's not in a personal relationship. He doesn't say, I believe in you, Lord. He says, I believe you, you guys, you just got good God. I believe. And the Bible tells us you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Because the idea of belief gang is never enough. It's a relationship. It's an authentic faith. It's knowing Jesus. It's talking to Jesus. It's being with Jesus. That's what matters. Not claiming at one point in your life that you went to a Christmas Eve service or that you call out the name of God in haste and saying that you believe. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's going to get it. I think that we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven because of what happens in chapter 4 where God takes him to the brink and beyond and Nebuchadnezzar ends up declaring some faith. It's pretty astounding. We'll talk about that Wednesday night. But the image of praise... The image of persecution. The image of perseverance. But this is four for the fire. So there's one more image. And it is the image of prophecy. And I told you last week that this is a practical book. Indeed it is. Chapter 1, we see Daniel, Azariah, Mishael, Hananiah. They showed us how to live godly lives in a pagan world. It's an amazing study. In chapter 2, we saw Wednesday night how they faced a life-threatening crisis of faith. And how they handle that crisis in faith and belief that God is going to deliver them out of this in the, in the interpretation of the dream. We see practically today in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego modeling perseverance, even in the face of fiery persecution. But if we stop there, we miss the value of the story. We miss what it's really about. Because while these stories nurture and encourage faith, remember this is a book of prophecy. And it's not just about Daniel. In fact, as I said before, it is about Jesus. Because the Bible tells us in Revelation 19.10, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So this story, though historically accurate, absolutely true, is an image, a shadow of a much greater reality, a prophecy of something yet to come. What do you mean? Note this very quickly. Nebuchadnezzar is an image of the Antichrist. Nebuchadnezzar is a great world dictator. The first great world dictator is a picture, an image of the last great world dictator of this age who will be the Antichrist. And Paul writes of him in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come until the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Well, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple of God, and Nebuchadnezzar now is displaying himself as being God, and all must bow down and worship before my image. And he would declare himself in that same place. Nebuchadnezzar, an image, a picture, if you will, of the Antichrist. And note this, what does Antichrist do? He sets up an image. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, he sets up an image. Let me read this to you. Revelation chapter 13, verse 11 says, I saw another beast, 
coming up out of the earth. The first beast is Antichrist. The second beast is a false prophet who will serve and work for Antichrist. He had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven to earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell in the earth because of the signs which are given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast. So the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free man and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark either the name of the beast or the number of his name. And here is wisdom, John writes. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. I can't believe Pastor Rick read that first on a Sunday morning. The beast, the 666. You know, the world freaks out in hearing that number. Hollywood wants to make movies about the beast and the 666 and what it really means. You know what John says it means? Look, be smart, he says. It just means it's the number of a man. 666, a number that never gets to seven. It never reaches seven. Seven is the picture of the number of completion in the Bible. And 666 never gets there. We never get there. We are 6.66666 repeating. We never get to seven without Jesus Christ. We are never complete without the Lord bringing us to the point of completion that He desires for us. And so it's just the number of man. What's kind of interesting to me here is how big was Nebuchadnezzar's idol? 90 feet or 60 cubits. How wide? Nine feet wide or six cubits? Sixty cubits high, six feet wide. If you count the number of instruments mentioned, there are six of them. That's interesting. I don't know if there's anything to it, but it intrigues me to note that. Sixty, six, and six. And so there may be something there. But we know this gold statue is going to be repeated again by one who will be a dictator like Nebuchadnezzar was a dictator. Note this, the furnace. Another image here. The furnace. The image of the tribulation itself. How hot was the furnace heated up to? Seven times. The tribulation is seven years. Oh, I hear that. You know, that seven-year tribulation thing. People, you know, you, you pre-tribbers, you think that. Look, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. The Bible talks about an explicit, a literal, seven years of tribulation. And we're going to get to that. We're going to talk about that later on in, in Daniel. But there are other places in Scripture that detail this explicitly. We know how long the tribulation period is. From the signing of a covenant to the coming of Jesus Christ, it's seven years. And so the furnace is heated up seven times hotter than usual. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 21, There will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And if you want to study up on the tribulation that is coming to this earth, read Revelation 6-19 through 19 and you'll get a pretty clear picture of what's on the way. Nebuchadnezzar's praise band is interesting. Even that finds a parallel in the coming tribulation. How so? Revelation chapter 18, verse 21 says, Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. At the sound, or and the sound, of the harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you anymore. Guess what? 
all false bogus worship and praise will be gone. And the music of the millennium will be worship to Jesus Christ. It's going to be amazing. How about the three young men? Azariah, Mishael, Hananiah, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, their Babylonian names. They represent for us the remnant of Israel. The remnant of Israel who go into the fire, who go through the fire of tribulation. Jewish saints who the book of Revelation tells us are going to be protected and kept through the fires of tribulation, just like these three young men. Revelation chapter 12, verse 6 says, The woman who is Israel fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days, which, by the way, is three and a half years and is the latter half of the tribulation. Three and a half plus three and a half being seven. Beautiful. Now, you might hear all this, and, and someone might be curious at hearing one parallel. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, Antichrist, that's interesting. Two parallels might be more intriguing. Ooh, Nebuchadnezzar set up an image. Antichrist is setting up an image. But the sheer number of parallels in this story with the coming uh, Antichrist and tribulation is absolutely astounding. And it brings me to one of the most asked questions about this story by Christians today. And that is, where's Daniel? Why is Daniel not here? Why is he not mentioned? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, far out. Where's Daniel? Where is this guy? I read a book years ago that that supposed maybe perhaps, and there's a fictional tale based around this whole thing, perhaps Daniel went to an apothecary and got himself some medicine that would give him an upset stomach so that he was home on his bed and didn't have to bow down. Then in other words, he bowed out. Hardly. Hardly. We look at the character and the nature of Daniel and every other story that he's involved in in this book, and this is not a guy who backs down. Some think, well, maybe he was away on Babylonian business, and perhaps he was. He could have been away on matters of state. But here's the bottom line. Daniel is absent from this furnace. Daniel is absent from the story in the same way, gang, that the raptured church is absent from the tribulation. Will not be here. And the Bible is very clear about this. That a day is coming. We don't know when. We don't know the day or the hour. But when believers in Jesus Christ, those who have a relationship with Him, which by the way is simple. It's as simple as beginning to talk to Him. It's as simple as praying to Him. It's as simple as asking Him to be your Lord. And then staying in that relationship with Him. day is coming when that church is going to be pulled out. The Bible says we'll be caught up to meet Him in the clouds. And so we will always be with the Lord. Like Daniel, absent from the tribulation. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing that which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. And that's in Revelation chapter 3. Who's Jesus talking to in Revelation chapter 3? The church. And in fact, even that is one of these great pieces of evidence that is sometimes overlooked. In Revelation chapter 1, John sees Jesus glorified. In Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, it's all letters to the church. It's the church, the church, the church, the church. Seven churches, seven letters. The church mentioned several times throughout those two chapters. And then all of a sudden from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 19, you don't hear about them again. Chapters 4 and 5, you suddenly see a scene in heaven. John's there. Might he represent the church? Perhaps. Revelation 6-19, through you never hear the church mentioned once. 
like the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's absent. And so the church will be absent in the days of tribulation ahead. In fact, check this out. Where was the last place that we saw Daniel in, in the book of Daniel? Do you remember? Look back at chapter 2, verse 49. It tells us Daniel made the request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. That's where I want to be. I want to be at the king's court. I want to be caught up to be with the king. I know there are some people who are like, oh, I want to stick around for the tribulation. I've got to use my guns. <laughs> I'll stay here to fight. Because Jesus needs me. And you're going to be the first one to die. I guarantee it. And for those who say, yeah, I want to be on the tribulation fourth, I say, yeah, you're an idiot. Some say, well, Rick, you're just, you're just trying to escape. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, duh! Wouldn't you rather be in the court of the king than dealing with the junk down here? Even right now? (sighs) Thank you. I want to be in his courts. By the way, one last parallel here. And that's the fourth man. The fourth man in our story. The presence of Jesus Christ. Because we know at the height of the fires of the furnace of Armageddon, Jesus shows up and He puts out the fire. And He ushers in His kingdom. Because Jesus always shows up. He always shows up right on time. Right on schedule. He meets us in the furnace. He's going to meet us in the sky.